It is a blessing to be with you guys. Uh, I am Ivan Holt. I'm uh, one of the pastors at 116 Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas, and it is a pleasure to be here with you guys this morning. Um, met, uh, I met Brady maybe two years ago, I wouldn't say. Yeah, and we, I, I wish we have had a lot more time than what we've had, but with the little time the Lord has blessed us with, I mean, it's, it's been a blessing every time, very edifying, very encouraging, and uh, I love y'all's pastor, so, and I know you guys do as well, probably a lot more than me. So, if you will, um, open up your Bibles to Romans 8, 28. The sermon's entitled, God's Good Purpose for Your Life. Romans 8, 28. And if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word. The Apostle Paul writes, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Father God, I thank you for it is such a pleasure to open up not the word of a man, not even the word of the Apostle Paul, but the very God-breathed word from your heart to ours. Father God, I pray that everyone in this room, including myself, starting with myself, that we would treasure this book more and more. As David says, it is to be desired above gold, yes, much fine gold. And he rejoices in, in it as much as in all riches, O oh God. Now I pray that you would help this weak vessel of dust. You would help me to proclaim your word. for the benefit of everyone in this place. Give them ears to hear. Father God, as Jesus tells us, we are in a war zone right now as the birds, the, the demonic forces are here to pluck up the word. I pray that you restrain them, Father, and that your word would run swiftly and be glorified and speak to everyone in this place. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, you, you guys have probably heard before, you know, God, he loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You know, well, that isn't much encouragement unless you know who the God is. 
who loves you. And you know something about that plan for your life. And you know that that God that has that plan for your life. It's not someone who makes plans and then his plans get thrown off. And has to go to a plan B. It isn't a God who is like, well, before I had this plan for you, but see, now you sin. So I can't do that for you anymore. That's not our God. And this is what this verse teaches us today about God. This is probably one of the most popular verses. But also, I believe it's one of the most misunderstood verses. And even when you do have an understanding of the verse, I believe many times we really have a hard time believing what it says. So my prayer is that God would take this word and you would not hear my voice. You would hear the voice of God. You would hear the voice of Christ proclaiming it to you. So God's purpose for your life. Concerning God's purpose for your life, there are three things at least we see that this verse teaches us. First of all, we have to know something. It says, and we know that all things work together for good. Second of all, you have to believe something. You have to believe all things work together for good. And last, lastly, you have to be something or be someone. The one literally loving God and being called according to his purpose. So first of all, we have to know something. What is it about God that we have to know concerning his good purpose in our life? Well, first of all, our God is sovereign. Our God reigns. He rules. There is not one molecule in this world that is not under the sovereign hand of God. We often speak and we say, you know, well, God allows evil to happen. There is truth in that. Yes, he does allow it. He does permit it. But it goes way beyond that. He is sovereign. Our pastor he just read a text. It did not say what God or what you meant for evil, God allowed for good. God permitted for good. It said he meant it for good. Our God is completely sovereign. He does whatever he wills, with whomever he wills, whenever he wills. You know, in the, the book of Daniel, chapter 4, there's a king. It's a very prideful king, King Nebuchadnezzar. And even after warning, being warned exactly what's going to happen. A year later, he's walking around, looking at his palace, looking at everything. And he says, look at this great Babylon that I built with my own hands. And a voice came from heaven. And his kingdom was snatched away from him. And he was driven into the fields. He lost his mind. You know, today we'd say we put him in a mental hospital. But no, God is sovereign, even over our mental state. So he was driven, 
And he ate grass like an ox till seven times, seven years passed over. And when God raised him back up, he declared this. He says, now I know. He said, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures through all generations. The inhabitants of the world, they're counted as nothing. For he does his will in the armies of heaven and in the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can restrain his hand or even say to him, what have you done? He is completely sovereign. We're told in Psalm 115, it says, Our God, he's in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135, our God does what he pleases in the heavens above, on the earth beneath, on the waters and all things in them. He's completely sovereign. Isaiah tells us, he has declared the end from the beginning and things far off from ancient times saying, my counsel shall stand. I will do all my pleasure. In the book of Job, after Job went through everything he went through, and God showed up in chapter 38, and he humbled Job, and he gave Job a sight of him. He said, I heard about you with the hearing of the ear. Now I see you with the seeing of the eye. And what's something that he saw? He said, now I know you can do all your will. No purpose of yours shall be thwarted. Our God is sovereign. Now, there are many who have an issue with God's sovereignty. They have a problem with that. I pray that's no one in here. I, I do not believe it's anyone in here. But there are many who have an issue with that. Well, we usually have an issue for one or two reasons. Either we don't like God, we don't like his character, because it's against our sin. But when it comes to Christians, it's usually this. We separate God's sovereignty from his goodness. See, he isn't just this sovereign who is up in heaven. And like I said before, you know, when you sin, it's like, well, yeah, I would, I, I would have been good to you, but now, now you've blown it. You, you've messed up. That's not our God. So you have to know not just he is sovereign. You have to know your sovereign God is good and can be nothing but good to you as his son, as his daughter. He loves you. He says, cast all your cares on me. Because I care for you. You know, in the, the book of James, after James says, when you are tempted, do not say you are tempted by God. Because God cannot tempt you or have anything to do with that. He says, each one is tempted when you're drawn away by your own lust and entice. It says, when desire conceives, it gives birth to sin. When sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death, then he says this, do not be deceived. Going back to that statement, you think God can have anything to do with tempting you? Anything to do with your sin? 
and you blame that on God, he says, do not be deceived. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, comes down from the Father of light, and with him there is no shadow of turn. You know, you guys know what a sundial is where, where there's a little, uh, I guess you can call it a stick. And as the world turns, you know, that shadow, it will move. And that's how they could tell time. That's the origin of clocks. That's even in the Bible, the sundial of Ahaz. When Ahaz, uh, or when uh, uh, King Hezekiah, he said he would be healed. And he's like, what's the sign? Well, shall the sundial go this way or that way? And it went backwards. God reversed time as a sign to him. But anyway, that's the sundial. But that's a shadow of turning. As the world rotates, the shadow moves because the sun is in a different place. But it says with God, Every good gift, every perfect gift is from him. And with him there is no variation or shadow of turning. That means he isn't going to be good to you yesterday, but not today. Yes, we sin. Yes, we must repent. That does not change the character of God. He is good to you. He can be nothing but good to you. He's committed to being good to you. The Psalms tells us, we don't even know the goodness he has stored up for us. He is nothing but good to you. Believe that. Yes, believe he is sovereign. You must. But believe your sovereign God is good. Your sovereign God loves you. I mean your sovereign God. Yes. People may have a problem with, you know, election. Well, this person, how come he didn't choose this person? They go to hell. Yes, you have a problem. But just consider this. Why, why anyone? Why anyone? Why did God choose you? Why did he open your eyes to Christ? Why did he give you life? See, your God is good. And the good God. As Brady said, yes, that's a problem for us because he's good. Because a good judge doesn't just let sin go. He doesn't just slide it under the rug. But our good God sent his son to satisfy his goodness so that he can be good to you, so that he can be good to me. So concerning God's purpose for your life, first of all, know this. You have a sovereign God who is good to you. And second of all, you have to believe something. You see, it says, and we know that all things work together for good. Now often when we hear that, especially when we look out in the world, when we even look at our own circumstances, we translate it this way. All the bad stuff turns out good for us. I mean, there's even a song. You took what the enemy meant for evil and you turned it for good. It's actually not accurate. You know, back to Genesis, it didn't say, you know, what you meant for evil got turned for good. Your translation may say intended, it may say meant, but God had an intention 
Before evil ever came into this world, God had an intention with it. He ordained it. There was a real sense that as a Christian, nothing bad can happen to you. You're like, that's hard to believe. It is hard to believe. Well, cry out with the Father. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And he helped that man's unbelief by casting out the demon out of his son. God is in the business of helping the unbelief of his children cry out to him. But believe this, all things in your life, if you are a child of God, if you have been regenerated, if you have been given a new heart, a new spirit, all things in your life are good. They are nothing but good. You're like, this is painful. Well, yes, it may be painful. Well, just picture this. If, you, if a, um, a surgeon has a patient, and this patient has some poison going up his arm, just a few seconds from getting to his heart, and if it gets to uh, his heart, then he dies. So what does the surgeon do? Well, I'm a good surgeon. I don't want to cause him pain. That's not what it does. He amputates that arm. Yes, it's painful. But was it not good? From the surgeon who is much wiser? Now, if that is a sinful human being, how much more our God, who is much wiser than that? You can trust in him, and all things in your life are good. No matter what it is, it has been ordained by God. It doesn't, it doesn't just happen. It has been ordained by him. He doesn't just allow it. He meant it. He intended it for your good. But then, we have to define good how God defines good. You know, if you look at the text, you'll see in verse 28, after it says, those who are called according to his purpose. What is that purpose? What is that good purpose? Notice verse 29 starts with a four. So here is an explanation. So what is God's good purpose to those who love him and are called according to that purpose? Verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So what is God's good purpose for you? To conform you to Christ. That's God's good purpose. And if you are a Christian in here this morning, this afternoon, <laughs> then, as we'll see in a minute, you have the same desire as God has for you. You want to be conformed to Christ. You want to be more like Jesus. You read the Gospels. And you see a response of Jesus. You're like, I wouldn't respond that way. You're like, but I want to. I long to be like him. You want to be like Jesus Christ. You want to be conformed to Jesus Christ. That's God's good purpose. And no matter what you go through, it is good because it is conforming you 
to Christ. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, he says, you can glory or you can rejoice in your tribulations. Say, why do that, Paul? Says tribulations produce perseverance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope. James tells us, consider it our joy, brethren, when you fall into various trials. Like what? Why? He says, because trials produce patience. And let patience have its perfect work, that you are perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Peter tells us, he says, for a little while, if necessary, you are grieved by various trials. Why? That the genuineness of your faith which is more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to the praise, honor, and glory of the revelation of Jesus Christ. So everything that comes into your life, it is good. It is conforming you to Christ. There is a real sense that we have every reason to worship God, to thank God for everything that comes into our life. Because everything that comes into our life is ordained by the sovereign God who is in control of absolutely all things. It's ordained for your good. And only for your good. To conform you to the image of Christ. Do you believe that? I know we all struggle to believe that. I struggle to believe that. I don't stand up here and say, oh, I got this figured out. No. I struggle to believe this. But we must believe this. And like I said, with the father of the child who was tormented by demons and threw him into the water and into the fire. And Jesus said, if you believe. And he said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Cry out to him. As I said, he's in the business of helping the unbelief of his children. So you have to know something concerning God's good purpose for your life. You have to believe something concerning God's good purpose for your life. But lastly, you have to be something. Or better yet, you have to be someone. So what type of person does all things work together for their good? I mean, is this general, just talking about everyone in the world? That God is just sitting up there and he's making everything work for good for everyone? Well then we would have to say then everyone's being conformed to the image of Christ, and we know that is not true. The majority of this world, I would say, hates Christ. They hate God's good purpose to conform them into the image of Christ. They're like, no, I like my own image. I want to live my way. I want to do what I desire. Are all things working together for good for that person? Well, actually, it's just the opposite. 
all things are working together for their bad, for their destruction, for their condemnation. You're like, how? I mean, the wicked are prospering. I mean, they have riches. Their, their lives are better than mine. They're at ease. Well, as we go through the scripture, we see in Psalm 73, Asaph has a little problem with that. Until he goes into the house of God. And he says, then I recognize their end. God has set them in slippery places. It's almost as if he's saying, yeah, all their ease, all their prosperity, they're like weights dragging them down the slippery slope to their own destruction. And the book of James, talking about the rich, the, the wicked rich, because of course there is nothing wrong with being rich. But those who are rich, living in wickedness, he says, they're fattening their hearts for the day of slaughter. And Isaiah chapter 17, when he, he is, uh, Isaiah is condemning and, uh, the judgment upon Damascus, he says, because you guys have forgotten the Lord and have not been mindful of the rock of your salvation, you shall plant foreign plants and your seedlings shall grow. In other words, I'm going to make you prosperous. You're like, what? That's judgment? But you keep going, next verse. But in the end, it will be utter destruction. So see, for the person who does not, or is not the person we are about to describe, all things are not working for their good. They're working for their destruction. I don't believe that's anyone in here today, but if it might be, and all things, you may say, well, my life is going good. You know, like in Thessalonians, saying peace and safety, living your own way. Do not be deceived. Don't let this world deceive you. If you do not, as we'll see, if you are not loving God and being called according to his purpose, all things are not working for your good. But you can repent. But you can turn from that. You can recognize the, the state you are in. And you can turn from that. See, God is merciful. Our good God, he's a merciful God. Jesus said, he who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Come to him. So what kind of person does all things work together for their good? So we see to those, and they're both present active verbs. So it's not those who love God, it's those loving God. Not just those called according to his purpose. Those who are being called according to his purpose. So the word love here. Now first of all, this isn't two different people. It isn't saying there's people that love God and there's people that are called according to his purpose. Rather, you can put it like this. Those who love God are loving God and are loving his purpose for their life. To conform them to Christ. So now we have to say, okay, what does it mean to love God? Do, do I love God? How do I know if I love God? 
Well, the word agape, it's used many, many times in scripture. If we strip the word down at its root, it really means a preference. A preference. Do you prefer God over this world? In the book of 1 John, talking about preferring the world, it says, do not love this world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life are not of the Father, but of this world. And the world and its lust are passing away, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Do you prefer this world? The lust of the flesh, what is that? What, what makes me feel good? What I desire? The lust of the eyes. I, that, that, I desire that. I desire that. All the things of this world. It's like when uh, Jesus was taken up, shown all the kingdoms of the, the world. And Satan's like, oh, all these things I'll give to you if you fall down and worship me. The lust of the eyes. The pride of life. What's that? It, it's all about me. Forget God. I'm God in my life. I do what I want, when I want, how I want. I'm the God. I'm the Lord in my life. That's the pride of life. Do you prefer that? Or do you prefer to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Christ? Jesus says, if you love your father or mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you love your son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you do not take up your cross, follow me, you're not worthy of me. If you live to save or preserve your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will keep it. So what is it you prefer? Even your closest relationships are not to be preferred above denying yourself to live for Christ. This is what it means to love him. Do you love him? And do you love his sanctifying purpose in your life to conform you to the image of Christ. If that is you this morning, then all things, all things, I don't care what it is you go through, at any time in your life, all things work together for your good. But perhaps you're in here this morning and you're like, I, I, I want to love God. Maybe during the time I'm preaching this sermon, something has happened, and you came in here, and you really could care less about God and his purpose for your life, being conformed to Christ. But something happened, and you're like, I, I, I need to love him, but I don't. Or perhaps you're in here, and you're like, well, I mean, I, I know I have some love for him, but there are other things I prefer over Christ. My family, I prefer them over Christ. I mean, there's some small love for Christ. But either one, what, what are you to do? How do you grow in your love for Christ? I mean, do you say, okay, I'm, I'm going to read my Bible. And after I read my Bible, I'm going to love him more. 
Or do we say, I'm going to go to church more. I'm going to hang out with his people more. I'm going to pray more. And then I'll love him. Well, all of those things can be helpful if they are means to an end. If you go to those things, that will not help you love him. Not one iota. Not one bit. So how do you grow in your love for Christ? Rather, for the love of God to be poured out in your heart for the first time? Or for the thousandth time after it has come almost to nothing? We're back in Romans chapter 5. After he speaks of God's sanctifying purpose through our tribulations, he says, hope does not disappoint. Why? He says, because the love of God is poured out in your heart by the Holy Spirit, which is given to us. You're like, okay, how does that happen? Well, the Holy Spirit has to illuminate something to you. And Paul continues. He says, for explanation. For when you were without strength, as he says in another place in Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't make a decision for God if you wanted to. You hated him. You did not love God. You did not love his purpose. Every baby that comes from the womb, there is not one who comes out of the womb. I want to be conformed to Christ. That's not going to happen. You come out of the womb and you are selfish. You talk about the pride of life. That's what you see in every delivery room. It's all about them. And as they grow, you see it increase and increase and increase. So what has to happen? What has to happen? As Paul said, when you're without strength, in due time, just at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He says, scarcely will one die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, one may dare to die. But the problem is, none of us came into this world righteous or good. David says, in iniquity, I was brought forth in sin. My mother conceived me. He says in another song, the wicked go astray from the womb telling lies. And then as we go on in our life, we don't get better. We actually get worse as our sin manifests itself. So, Scarcely will one die for a righteous man. But we weren't righteous. None of us were. There is none righteous. No, not one. Though for a good man, one may dare to die. But there is none good. No, not one. But God. God demonstrated his love. See, it starts with his love. If you try to start with your love, oh, I'm going to love God more. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. You aren't going to accomplish anything. You start with his love. It says, but God 
demonstrated his love for us. And while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And he says, much more? You say, what's, what's more than Christ dying for us? He says, much more, having been justified by his blood. What's that mean? It means not only did Christ die for your sin, but he made you absolutely righteous. And when God looks at you, if you are one loving God and being called according to his purpose, when God looks at you, you may see yourself like, man, like Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. That might be how you see yourself. But when God looks at you, as we read in Psalms, which is quoted in Romans 4, David says, blessed is the one whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man on whom the Lord does not impute sin. Not one sin is on your account. Not one sin can ever be on your account. You are perfectly righteous before God as though you lived the life of Christ. When God looked down and saw Christ when he was in his earthly ministry, that's how he sees you. Perfectly righteous. That will not change. Remember, with him there is no variation or shadow of turning. So much more than just your sins being forgiven, you have been made absolutely righteous with a righteousness that you can't even comprehend. In the book of Job, we're told that God's righteous standard, he says he even charges the angels with error. So you have a righteousness that is above sinlessness. How does that work? I don't know. But the Bible declares it. So much more, having been justified or made righteous by his blood, you shall be saved from wrath through him. As Brady spoke of earlier, that Jesus Christ, he took upon himself the wrath, the infinite wrath of the almighty God when he hung on that cross. God looked at him. And saw every sin of every one of his elect, which is a multitude no one can number according to the book of Revelation. Every single sin in thought, word, or deed for all ages were put on Christ. And he suffered more hell than any sinner ever will because his wrath is infinite. And being infinite, that means that every sinner that goes to hell for all eternity, if they're there 10 billion times, 10 billion ages, they will still be choking on the first molecule of the cup, the wine cup of the wrath of God. But Jesus Christ swallowed it up, swallowed it completely and said, it is finished. And there is no wrath. Remaining for you. And he says much more. You're like, wait, it gets better? He says much more. He says, while you were enemies, you're reconciled to God through the death of his son. 
While we were enemies, we're all born enemies of God. I pray that's no one in here this morning. But we are born into this world. Enemies of God. Hating God. But he says, while we were enemies, we're reconciled to God. Who reconciles his enemies? Our, our good and merciful God does. While you are enemies, you are reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, you shall be saved by his life. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So how is the love of God poured out in your heart? How do you become one who loves God and loves his purpose in your life? You go back to the cross. You go back to God's good purpose. You know, you say, it's hard for me to believe that all of this evil is meant for good. Do you not realize the greatest evil ever committed in this world was the greatest good ever? As Peter says, it was according to the predetermined purpose of God that you took him by lawless hands and crucified him. And just as the statement David made, or excuse me, Joseph made, said what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So according God's good purpose for your life, you have to know something. Know you have a sovereign God that is only good to you. You have to believe something. Believe that all things in your life are working together for your good. By that sovereign and good God. And you have to be something. Be one loving God. And one loving his sanctifying purpose for your life to conform you to Christ. And therefore, one loving the gospel, embracing the gospel. And having the love of God poured out in your heart by the Holy Spirit. has given to us all. Let's pray. Blessed and Holy Father, I thank you. I thank you for helping me. For I am no one. I am nothing. I pray that you were glorified today. Father God, I don't know what everyone in here is going through. But you do. Not only do you know it, you have ordained it. And you have ordained them to be in this place this morning. To hear this word. I pray, Father, that it bears much fruit in every life here. That the saints in this place are encouraged to embrace God's good purpose for their life. And if anyone in here is in the other category, 
And all things are not working together for their good. But all things are working together for their destruction. Just distracting them. As they are on that wide path leading to destruction, leading to hell. I pray that you would awaken them, Father. As Ezekiel says, you take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Awaken them, Father. And may they flee to Christ. May they embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. Cast themselves upon Christ. And therefore be transformed to one loving God and loving his purpose. The life will be changed forever. So, Father, do your will in this place. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.